This is American Rhapsody, a podcast of the Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin. Each episode, we interview those who witnessed American history firsthand, who have since donated their archives to the Briscoe Center. We also talk to historians, journalists, and others who research in those collections. We're all asking the same question, what actually happened? It's a good time to dig in. It's a good time to talk loud. It's a good time to remember a few things about how to fight these sorry bastards. Patriotic bullies back in World War I uh, used to run around kicking dachshunds on the grounds that they were German dogs. Now, I'll tell you something about people like that. They don't go around kicking German shepherds. (laughs) The political world can be so nasty so partisan, so utterly disconnected from ordinary life that you'd better laugh or else you might cry. That's why many of us appreciate political satire like the kind you can view on The Daily Show, John Oliver, and The Colbert Report, among others. An historically important predecessor to those commentators was journalist Molly Ivins, whose contemporaries in the art of political satire were people like anti-war activist Abby Hoffman, gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson, and Molly's mentor and fellow Texan, the wonderful John Henry Falk. Political satire has a very long history in America, and it's a lineage Molly contributed to in her own unique way. Her style was charmingly cynical, robustly feminist, distinctly Texan. You got to have fun while you're fighting for freedom. For one thing, you don't always win, and that might get to be all the fun you ever have. Born in 1944, Molly grew up in Houston and went to college in the Northeast and did postgraduate work at the Institute of Political Sciences in France. In 1967, she started working at the Houston Chronicle, covering the nuts and bolts of the city government. She was sewer editor, as she put it. In the 1970s, after a stint at the Minneapolis Tribune, where she was the paper's first female police reporter, Molly returned to Texas to co-edit the Progressive Texas Observer, the state's premier muckraking news magazine. After that, she reported for that old gray lady, the New York Times, but her style was a poor fit for that buttoned-down newspaper, so she returned to Texas. Writing a column first for the Dallas Times-Herald and later the Fort Worth Star-Telegram during the 1980s and 90s, Molly ate, breathed, loved, hated, and yes, ridiculed the political culture of Texas. But her journalism always came first. The satire came second. And boy, was she funny, unless the joke was on you. But many of her targets eventually accepted the joke even if they hadn't enjoyed the experience. Up until her death in 2007, she wrote passionately about the absurdities and injustices of American life. And she gleefully made fun of the good old boy network of the Texas political establishment. Molly died in 2007 after a long battle with cancer. Her extensive collection of papers are now housed at the Briscoe Center. When she donated them, she stressed to me 
they shouldn't become a monument to her life, but instead serve as a working resource for those in the future seeking to understand the issues she had covered. Her papers certainly do that, but they do so much more. Today they exist for a new generation of journalists as a guide for understanding how to hew hard to the truth, how to speak truth to power, how to make sense of injustice, and how to smile through your teeth while doing it. You might at this point be tempted to come to the center and pour through all 180 linear feet of Molly's papers. Before you do, you need to listen to today's guest, Janice Engel. She's the director of Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins, which is an award-winning documentary that was released just last year and is now available for viewing on Hulu. An eminent filmmaker and showrunner, Janice is also a professor at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco, where she teaches documentary film to students from all over the world. Janice spent six months camped at the Briscoe Center pouring through Molly's papers, which includes Molly's correspondence, newspaper clippings, photographs, audiovisual recordings, and her research materials, and the manuscript drafts for all of her best-selling books, including Molly Ivins' Can't Say That, Can She?, and Bushwhacked, Life in George W. Bush's America. Janice Engel had more than 3,000 items from those papers digitized during the project, which she used to great effect in her documentary. Race Hell brings Molly back into focus for a new age, the age of Trump, social media, and Black Lives Matter, an age that could do with biting commentary and blistering political wisdom. Race Hell takes Molly out of the archives and into the spotlight. It's a hell of a ride and a testament to Janice's ability as a filmmaker. Janice Engel, welcome to American Rhapsody. Thank you for having me, Don. You know, here you've done this uh, huge project, this outstanding documentary about Molly Ivins, and uh, you never met her. You never met Molly. How did this happen? Yeah, I, I never met Molly Ivins, and... Dang, I think had we met, I think uh, I would have been, you know, kind of sitting at her feet. We would have been peas in a pod, but you know, I'm not in Texas. I'm not a Texan. And I, I was one of those snooty East Coast liberals who ended up living in California, actually more in California than New York, but the New York is always with me. And, you know, Carlisle used to harass me about, you know, my snooty attitude about Texans and uh Anyway, I, I just, I didn't even really know who Molly Ivins was. I knew of her. What led you to her papers at the Briscoe Center? I believe my first visit, let me see, in my 2012 email introduction to Molly's chief of stuff. That was there. Briscoe Archive Online was May 20th, 2013. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed with your record keeping. Though. Well, because I say, you know, this is why I make documentaries and why I also am a director who edits. I'm so, I'm anal. I mean, I, I'm really like, you know, Molly was just, I mean, obviously she was a pack rat. I'm a little more, org, uh, much more organized. I think that's, I think there's, that's definitely accurate. I would say, Don, overall, over a five or six year period, I probably spent six months total, but at different times. So I think I spent the first time I came was in 2013 and I spent a month. Well, 
that shows in the documentary, frankly, uh, because of the incredible depth and use of uh, archival material that you put to use, really. It was amazing. You know, let me ask you, so when you were working on the papers and you were going through everything, you know, what's it like um, meeting a person you never met through her papers? Was that a really key thing to trying to get a better understanding of who this person was? Absolutely. First of all, you have to go through the, you know, you have to look at the, how you guys, because it's, it's librarian speak. So how did, how is it broken down? And I would go by years and I, I wasn't interested in her financials and her contracts. I was interested in the personal. And the hardest part of First On was to not get engrossed in wanting to read everything right then and there. That's a common problem, Janice. I, I just, I mean, as soon as I started to find like letters home from camp and her postcards from France and at different points in the trajectory, and I really made it my goal to get through as much stuff as I could. So what I needed to do was to come up with the system. And 2013, I started it. By 2015, I had it down. And what I did, 2015, I spent, I think, a good two months in the archive. Um, we had had a Kickstarter campaign, and it allowed us allowed me to stay in, in Austin for a month, and I lived in your archives. I lived. Thank you, Aaron Glazer, Margaret, and whoever else was always there and would see me every day. Well, let me let me ask you this. I mean, you, so Molly's, obviously, Molly's papers are a gold mine. We knew that, you know, when we convinced her and persuaded her to put her papers at the center. And uh, But did you use any other papers at the center other than Molly's? Yeah, I did. Oh, I wanted to answer, answer your question, though. What would blow me away was when I would find her correspondence between her and her father. Sure, yeah. what, uh, what, what, that blew me away. I, I, I found, basically, I think I found a note that she left on the kitchen counter. At the time, I was also interviewing her friends and this whole world. One friend would say, oh, my God, of course, it's about time. And everybody would want to share. When I would do interviews, and I, I I had a transcriptionist, so as you know, we have incredible transcriptions of all the interviews, and I did good. I, I would say, you know, from Liz Falk to Betsy Moon to her sister, I got Andy Ivins basically a, a month before he passed, or three months before he passed, and I'd been looking, trying to get a hold of him for a good year plus, and he, I got a phone call one day saying, I hear you've been looking for me. So... It was unbelievable. And somebody dropped that Molly knew she was going to be famous and that's why she saved everything. But perhaps, I mean, I think that she had a sense of her own destiny and the fame quotient, but I also think she saved everything because she loved history and her life was part of history. She was an archivist in herself. I I must say she had an encyclopedic memory and knowledge just to her, her level of reading. So it's the personal stuff that would blow my mind. Oh my God, her mother wrote her a letter, you know, her relationship with Hank Holland, which didn't make it into the film, but apparently the love of her life and why she people say she never married. And, and she never let on that they were necessarily having, a, it was starting to be a romantic relationship, but in her mind, she had created this, what girls do, what women do when you're brought up a certain way. And it's particularly back in those times, uh, uh, the kind of the picket fence photo um, for a nanosecond when she was at Smith and he was at Yale. And she wrote a letter back to her mother that she and Hank in the football games is very, very waspy, very white, very privileged, kind of their back and forth, not revealing too much. And her mother actually 
and never made it in. But her mother wrote, would write her mag, would write her this letter back. And so she made some comment like, well, you know, I really don't want you date, you know, going for somebody. She kind of poo-pooed Hank and then something about, you know, boys of the Jewish persuasion. Oh my God. And it was just so of the era and of the time and so revealing. And, and of course, you know, Margot changed after she, you know, was left by Jim. And that was the other thing that was revealed, how Jim Ivins really left Mag. And I, it's just the stories that I learned. And I feel that I was given a gift to kind of not having Molly there. I really want, wished I could have had a conversation with her about some of this stuff. It was incredible. And then finding some journal entries about her admitting her alcoholism was gold, because that's what gave us, that took us out of hagiography. Hey well, you know, I've been doing this uh, business, really in this business of uh, history and archives for really 45 years. And Molly's papers are extremely unusual in how personal they are. You know, we get, uh, I convince people to give us their papers and, you know, it's like they've gone through them with a vacuum cleaner, <laughs> pulling everything out that's, uh, you know, they, they're afraid that might be sensitive or whatever. And so you lose a lot of the personality of the person many times because they just don't want those kind of papers in their in their collection. And Molly is totally different that way. That's why it's, yeah, I mean, it's a goldmine. I have to think uh, also uh, John Henry Falk's widow, uh, Liz Falk, because Liz uh, did a great job, I think, in um, persuading Molly just to include everything. And, and she saw to it that, uh, and I guess Betty too, uh, Betsy, I mean, you know, that everything came to us, you know, it really wasn't combed through for anything. Well, Liz was, I mean, Liz was an incredible executive assistant. She also, I think, I, I mean, Liz is an interesting lady and I interviewed her and um, she really kept Molly, I think, organized. Her organizational skills are extraordinary. Well, let me, you know, man, let me just put this in for our listeners. Uh, Liz Falk was, as I said earlier, with the widow of uh, John Henry Falk. Uh, talk a little bit about John Henry, because there's a direct connection with Molly on John Henry. Well, yeah. So John Henry Falk um, was Molly's mentor, one of them. And, uh, I, you know, she's, when she was at the TO and writing, she fell in with all the, you know, the, the progressives, which were few, uh, that would gather at, at 4 p.m., on the second floor balcony of the Texas Observer at, what is it, uh, 7th and Nueces was the, uh, the old TO headquarters. And um, through this crowd of people, Molly met John Henry Falk and I guess Cactus Pryor and a lot of other people who were, you know, Ronnie Duggar. It was that whole, it was the, the whole crowd of people that would come together. And Molly basically sat at the feet of John Henry. She loved his style, you know, the style that he did when he went on became public speaker, I guess, following, you know, breaking the, the blacklist, suing the black for the blacklist and he won. But, um, and then he was on Hee Haw, but he could never gain the footing he had had, the celebrity he had had before he was blacklisted. And he did speaking engagements and it was this folksy style that used, I guess, music and joking around, but it was very political, very progressive. And um, a lot of stuff that Molly used in some of her speeches came right from John Henry Falk. 
Well, John Henry, as you know, was someone I knew very well. And we have, you know, the Briscoe Center uh, also has John Henry Fox papers. Did you have a chance to look at those at all? I, I dug into a little bit of, you, that was your other question that I didn't answer. You asked me who else. Yes, I did dig a little bit into John Henry Falk. And I also, uh, mostly looking for um, visuals of him. You know, I was always looking for film. I was looking for video um, or, or audio uh, because I'm not writing a book. I was looking for that kind of documentation um, because I had photos. I, was, I had photos of Molly from Molly's beautiful photos in hers that I was able to use. Uh, I also, Ann Richards, Ann Richards Papers. Former governor of Texas. Yes. Look, I, the best part was finding, I got to tell you, not, the photographs alone, but finding invites from Annie Richards to everybody for one of their picnics, barbecues out at their ranch with hand-drawn maps and back and forths of who could come, who couldn't come. And... Um, and then, of course, I'll tell you my biggest heartache in all of this. Nobody did home movies. And I asked Cecile about that, Cecile Richards. And she said, you know, the adults, they were off all partying, drinking, and probably, you know, and smoking grass. And, and she goes, we kids were off having, she says, one of the best adventures of our life were those picnics because it would just be a gathering of adults and children and children could go do what they wanted and the adults all party. She goes, nobody, yeah, nobody ever took home movies. Well, I, you know, I was uh, fortunate enough to be in some of those, not home movies, but I'm talking about some of these gatherings. And uh, in fact, that's how I met Molly. Um, but uh, no, I don't recall. I think I'd have been shocked if someone had had walk, you know, been walking around making home movies at the time. I mean, I would have thought there would have been one filmmaker or somebody who had a Super 8 camera that would have just, or you know, but not, it just blew my mind. Yeah, it wasn't on anybody's mind, you know, it just, uh, well, let me ask you, uh, Janice, you know, now you've had this tremendous experience as a filmmaker uh, and, and and really digging through archives and you have a very, I mean, clearly from your experience, you have a very clear understanding of the value of saving these papers and, and, and having, you know, these collections uh, preserved in archives. Uh, do you think that uh, documentary filmmakers should make better use of Archives. Uh, I mean, what would you, you know, would you? How would you? Would you advise uh, uh, beginning filmmakers how important it is to get to the papers if there are any? Yeah, oh, yeah, and I and, and I do, Don, because I teach. <laughs> I teach. I knew uh, that. <laughs> I teach. I teach documentary filmmaking to young young people from actually from all over the globe who come to um, the Academy of Art University in San Francisco on site and now these days virtually, um, our virtual classrooms, as well as um, some online. And I actually just rewrote the documentary, uh, one course. A big part of what I do is to teach them about researching and how important it is. And uh, archival, depending, you know, depending on the type of doc they're making, are they making, is the person, if the person's alive, then chances are they're gonna be doing a, a cinema verite observational style or participatory, you know, style documentary, little mixture of both. But if the person's not alive or they're doing something that has social, political, cultural, whatever it is, I said, you're always going to have to do research. And so depending on where it is, what it is, you have to understand how archives work. And even if it's, I said, if it's going to the town hall and finding 
the information about, and maybe you're making it about a place, you know, what's, or, or about a, a, a time period, like in Sausalito, somebody wanted to make a, one of my students spent doc one and doc two making a, a documentary about the, the houseboats in Sausalito. And I said, go to the local historical society, start up a conversation. But if you're, I tell them, if you're making it about a person, you have to find out if they've passed, if they have papers and where they are kept. And then I tell them my experience with the Briscoe and how I lived in the archives. I did, I lived there. And how you have to be organized as well as befriend the lovely people who can help you find what you're looking for. And you have to do your, you know, your deep dive dig. It is an absolute prerequisite requirement even if you are doing somebody who is currently alive and you're following them, you really need to know inside and out who this person is. Well, you're, what you're saying is music to my ears as a historian uh, and also as uh, I used to teach graduate students uh, about uh, how to use archives. And uh, as a historian, we have a saying where there's no records, there's no history. And uh, that's not 100% true, but it's largely true. Well, if you don't read the history, Don, then there's no history either, as we are sadly watching in our current. <laughs> well, you know, that, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you, why do you hope people, given the drastic change in circumstances politically in this country, just during the time you were working on this project? And what do you hope people take away from that, from the documentary when they, after they watch it? I want them to take away what Molly wanted them to no, it was it was life her life's breath mission and uh, total hats off to John Henry Falk, but about our First Amendment and about what we stand to lose, and uh, with this democracy that we uh, or republic, as it's called, which isn't you know always uh, isn't perfect. It's imperfect in its perfectness, but it, and it had it got a lot of things wrong, but that's what's great about a democracy. You can change it, but you can only change it if you vote. And if you don't vote, as Molly would say, you can't bitch. Well, you know, Janice, maybe this is a good time for us to hear from Molly. Do we have a clip that we can hear, uh, Mr. Producer? Yep, I can. Um, I think we have the two clips that you just mentioned, Janice. Uh, I can play one, then there'll be a quick pause, and I'll play the other. People, I listen to people who don't vote, and they say cute little things like, oh, I'm just not interested in politics. Oh, it just encourages the politicians. Oh, they're so boring. Oh, they're all crooks. Um, I think what you have there is a real dereliction of duty. I think you have a terrible failure of responsibility. Because politics in this country is not something that is done by them. It's not those people in Washington. It's not those people in your state capitol. This country is run by us. It is our deal. And to me, it's the most appallingly irresponsible. I hear these people say, oh, I'm just not interested in politics. Well, I guess you're just not interested in your life either. I mean, what do they think? Politics is not something you, as though it were a show. You looked at it as though it were a picture on a wall. It is the very stuff of our lives. It is how we live, how people make us live. Um, I do get indignant. One of the mistakes we make when we try to talk about politics in this country is we keep pretending that the political spectrum runs from right to left. It doesn't. It runs from top to bottom. 
We live in a country where the richest 1% of the people in this nation control 40% of the total wealth. And those numbers get worse every year. There's a lot of cheap cynicism around. And I mean, you know, it, it's fun and I laugh at it whenever I hear it. But I will tell you, I think among both politicians and among journalists, the most serious mistake we consistently make is assuming that people are dumb. People aren't dumb. They aren't stupid. And there is a constant condescending assumption among people in our profession and among politicians that somehow people are easily snookered and manipulated. I don't think so at all. And I think the fact that 50% of the people in this country don't even bother to vote is one indication of exactly how bright they are. Cynicism, apathy, and disgust is a pretty intelligent response to a lot of American politics today. I run around getting excited because Congress is about to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act, and I think it's a terrible thing. Uh, well, you know, there's some guy out there fixing cars who doesn't know anything about Glass-Steagall. On the other hand, I couldn't tell you anything about fixing cars either. Um, and so I think that assuming because people are ignorant, they're stupid, is one of the most fundamental mistakes we make. Man, I, you know, when I, so when, when I had to go back in yesterday, Ben, and go back into, because I hadn't been in in a long time into my, my avid project, and I went in, and I tell you, I just, hearing her voice, it just, I feel like, I, the, James Egan always calls me, my producing partner, Minnie Molly, I, just, I so resonate, I listen to her, and I just go, yes, yes, I wish you were alive, because I would just be, you know, kicking it up with you, I, and I love but the way you cut it off because what she's comparing is she says Glass-Steagall Act. I'm like all up in you know arms about that. And meanwhile, there's a guy. It's, what she does, that's why she's so great, Molly, is some blue-collar guy, a mechanic who knows how to fix a car. And I don't know anything about what he does. So what she's making the point is about the elitist nature of journalists, media, the entitlement that comes with that. And the view of the world, which is why we are in the state we're in right now. Her prescience, the comment, you know, the corporate inequity, the richest 1% control 40% of the world's wealth. And I have in the film, if you look, there's, um, I break up, I use a lot of these pieces, not all of them. I put the ends on that I loved, but I couldn't include it, uh, where it's the big heist. And, and you, that was in 1991 that she said that. It is top to bottom. It is not left to right. It has nothing to do with left to right. It is, is top to bottom. It is about, it is about cast. Thank you, Isabel Wilkerson. It is about cast. Uh, I was just going to run on with a quick question here. Um, I, I was wondering who you think sort of takes on Molly's mantle today. There, there's always been comedy in journalism, whether it's Hunter S. Thompson. There's always been sort of political theater, cynical political theater, I'm thinking Abby Hoffman. And then Molly Ivins fits into this strain as sort of an early pioneer of this kind of mix of comedy, cynicism and news. But today we seem to, you know, we've got John Oliver, we've got Trevor Noah, John Stewart before that. Do you see this kind of cultural product as, uh, as part of Molly's legacy? There is nobody who does what Molly Ivins did at all. Right now, first of all, print journalism is, as you know, is suffering. Um, I, you know, Connie Schultz, you know, she won one of the, I think, the Molly Awards uh, when I, the first, maybe the 2013. She was, I, you know, the inheritor, so to speak, um, and uh, out of uh, Ohio. 
and she's married to Sherrod Brown, the senator there. And then there's always been, you know, Maureen Dad and Gail Collins, but Maureen Dad is pithy, not Molly. And 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 Gail Collins, you know, she I, I spoke with her and she was very touched that, you know, people brought up her name, but she said, No, 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 you know. And I don't think she's Molly. Um, there's nobody who does what Molly did, because if you look at what Molly did, uh, she was one person. Basically, uh, doing what the com- the comedians copy what she does, but the comedians and I had a, I had a discussion with Rachel Maddow about this. It didn't make it into the film. The comedians like the Trevor Noah and John Oliver and Colbert and Samantha Bee and uh, whoever else does you know political humor um, with an edge. Bill Moore, um, he's can be nasty, but but they all have a, a writers' room. They have a team of writers coming up with the humor. Now, of course, they lead the charge and they're all very astute and politically uh, motivated and, and, and smart people, but they have a writer's room. Uh, they also need to have the investigative journalistic pieces to be able to come up with the jokes. So they have to rely on journalism to what's going on. So what you have with Molly Ivins is you have the journalist and the deep dive investigative journalist and the columnist who was a political humorist, all in one person. You know, Molly read six newspapers a day, every morning. I, she was voracious. That, that's how she could do what she did and had that breadth of knowledge. So I don't think there is anybody who is or does. There's a gal who had a, uh, who's pithy like her and funny named Lauren Duca. And she was mentioned to me by several people. And I started following her on her Instagram feed and on, she kind of took a break because of the pandemic, but Lauren Duca pancake brain, she's very Molly-esque, I think. And she was very honored that I, I sent her a tweet, a tweet about that. And she, she was very honored to even be thought of that way. Cause she holds Molly up there as one of her, her idols, I think, or her, one of her bacons. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 who's the next Molly Ivins? All those kids on the front line that you see yelling, vote them out, vote them out. November is coming. November is coming. Those are the next Molly Ivins. They're, they're, they're fighting the fight. Black Lives Matter. They're in the streets. That's an excellent point you made uh, about, you know, the other folks that you mentioned, uh, like Colbert, having riders. And, and Molly was her own rider, uh, for sure. I mean, She's like everyone else, like all of us, which she borrowed from mentors like John Henry Fogg. But, uh, you know, she, she basically was her, her own writer. And I think that's an excellent uh, point. And I'm so glad that her papers are full of her literary uh, materials, you know, the, the things that she was writing. And uh, it makes one of the, it's one of the more valuable uh, parts of the collection. Well, I found one more clip in the archives uh, that I'm sure you're aware of too, Janice. I thought it might be a good place uh, for us to, uh, a good final clip for us to listen to. Now, don't you know that that's what we do in this country over and over? We get so scared, so, so scared, some real menace, we don't make them up. So scared of communism or crime, or drugs, illegal aliens, or terrorism that we think we can make ourselves safer by making ourselves less free. Now, it's a logical proposition that won't hold a drop of water. But it's amazing how consistent that response is in American history. And we are in another such time. 
so frightened that we think we can make ourselves safer by damaging our own freedoms. Now, when you make yourself less free, you're not safer. You're just less free. Yeah, that that's from that's from Ray's Hell. That, that's so relevant again to what's going on right now. It's amazing, isn't it? it really, is amazing. Janice, this has been great. We uh, are delighted to have you part of the Briscoe family. We'll have a reunion one of these days. <laughs> and uh, but thanks for giving us your time and your heart and your soul. And I know is invested in this entire subject. And uh, we're so happy that you were able to use the papers and resources that we have at the Briscoe Center. It really um, means a lot, more than a lot. I, I feel like I'm part of not only Molly Ivan's extended family and posse, but that the Briscoe embraced me and allowed me to do my deep dive dig into all that was Molly Ivan's. And so, first of all, with the what you're doing with these podcasts is fantastic. And I'm really grateful to be a part of it. So thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. The Briscoe Center preserves the raw materials of the past. Photographs, letters, diaries, business and organizational records, artifacts, and much more. Today's episode was made possible by the Molly Ivins papers, as well as those of Ann Richards, Jim Hightower, and John Henry Falk. These collections are among thousands of others at the center. People across America have been entrusting this evidence to the university since the 1880s. Today, this evidence is used by people from across America. In addition to inspiring their work, Collections inspire our own. Books, documentaries, exhibits, online repositories, and digital humanities projects. By collecting, preserving, and making available these archival materials, the Briscoe Center helps keep the debates and arguments about American history, our values, origins, and identities rooted in evidence. And we keep the American Rhapsody going. What follows is a brief conversation between me, Ben Wright, the producer of American Rhapsody, and Dr. Carlton in regards to how the Molly Ivan papers came to the Briscoe Center and how they fit in with other collections here. Well, Don, I was just interested to know um, how the Molly Ivan's papers came to the Briscoe Center in the first place. Well, to be, you know, to be frank about it, it was because of my relationship with Molly. I, uh, I first met Molly at John Henry Fox house here in Austin back in the early 1980s after she returned to, uh, to the city. And, uh, she was getting ready to go, I believe up to the Dallas Times Herald at that time. But at any rate, uh, you know, she stayed in Austin, even when she was working for, uh, the Dallas and Fort Worth newspapers, uh, and I attended a lot of these little sort of seminars, seminars over meals and drinks at John Henry's uh, and Liz's house. Uh, 
right. and uh, they were great. Uh, they were a lot of fun. So I got to know Molly in a very casual, uh, you know, familiar way. And so that relationship continued over the years. And uh, I asked Molly to do a few programs for the for the center. Uh, including a major conference that we did on the First Amendment back in the 1990s, uh, and, which was quite a project and program. Uh, during that period of time, I frankly was uh, I frequently mentioned to her that we really wanted her papers. And like so many people, uh, she just, you know, that we talked to, she just wasn't ready to discuss that. And I understand it. And so, uh, but eventually, uh, I'd say in the late 1990s, I believe it was in the late 1990s, you know, Molly called me and said, well, are you ready to, you know, go back to that conversation that we were having about my papers? And I said, absolutely. So that's really what began the whole thing. And she had a lot of, uh, a lot of institutions asking her for her papers. And uh, so I was very flattered and, and honored that uh, she came back to us and you know, wanted to work with us on it. So that's really how they came to uh, the center. And uh, as I've, I've, I've said before, Liz Falk uh, is among those who really helped uh, get this done. John Henry had uh, died uh, several years before this, um, and we already had John Henry's papers. And, the, you know, they have, that's another point I want to make that Molly made to me. Um, and that is that we had the papers of a number of, of her cohorts and uh, colleagues and people who she admired and respected, including uh, uh, J.R. Parton, uh, uh, who had uh, also uh, only had died only a year or so before Molly called me. So we had Sissy Ferenthal was another one, uh, several people. Uh, in fact, the list is pretty long. She was very comfortable being in that company. She also knew that I had uh, worked very closely with Walter Cronkite on his memoirs and that we have the Walter Cronkite papers. And she was a great uh, admirer of uh, Walter Cronkite's. So for all those reasons, that's why she there was a very personal thing as well. But uh, there was a lot more to it. Uh, and that's how we got the collection. That's really interesting, this idea that. Uh that collections sort of clump together around themes and interests that, you know, you, Walter Cronkite gave his papers and that create John Henry Falk did, and that creates a sort of domino effect where other people want to be in the same club. That's correct. And she was very well aware of it. In fact, every time we would get a collection that uh, somehow related to her as a, either a, a friend of hers or a colleague or whatever, I'd often hear from her. I remember we have the papers of uh, Maury Maverick Jr., who was uh, an anti-war uh, attorney in San Antonio, the son of a former congressman and mayor of San Antonio. She was uh, big friends with uh, with Maury, and she called me. I'll re I recall that phone call very well, how happy she was that Maury's papers were being preserved and was very complimentary about it. So she kept up with what we were doing, and, and I, of course, kept up with her as well. As I said, she did programs for us, uh, and uh, it all worked out well. For our uh, for those listening who don't know who uh, John Henry Falk is, could you tell us a little bit about him and his connection? John Henry Falk uh, was a graduate of the University of Texas. He grew up here in Austin, and he came from a very liberal, really uh, uh, far-to-the-left family. Um, his father was a socialist. 
And uh, Johnny, uh, as I said, uh, went to university and uh, he studied folklore and studied under J. Frank Doby, a legendary literary figure here in Texas. And uh, he, you know, eventually uh, wound up in New York City and uh, became, got a job uh, for, with CBS uh, as a, uh, with a radio program called Johnny's Back Porch. And uh, uh, Johnny had this uh, great gift of, uh, of being a storyteller. Over the years, uh, Johnny uh, had really gathered and assembled an amazing number of, of uh, stories that uh, usually made a, a point uh, politically, uh, usually having something to do with uh, the First Amendment and civil liberties, particularly freedom of speech. And he would turn those stories into uh, kind of a satire or folksy um, sort of country way of uh, telling stories, but while but still making uh, a very serious point about the Constitution, uh, particularly the uh, you know the Bill of Rights. So he did that gig on CBS uh, radio and uh, was quite successful at it, and then. He got involved in the uh, AFTRA, which is the union for radio and television announcers. And um, they, he was part of, a, of an election campaign for the president of AFTRA that uh, sought to overthrow a very conservative guy from television. And uh, it upset uh, a lot of people, a lot of conservative people, the whole, the whole battle. And uh, Johnny wound up getting blacklisted as a result, uh, being accused of being a communist and a uh, fellow traveler, uh, which was all malarkey. He was to the left, but he was a democratic socialist like Ber uh, Bernie Sanders. And, um, but in those days, this is the period of the Red Scare and McCarthyism. Um, and to be to the left uh, was, easy tar was an easy target. Uh, for the McCarthyites and people who supported McCarthy. And uh, so the blacklist that reigned uh, over television in those dark days uh, was uh, very powerful. And he got blacklisted. And if you got blacklisted, you lost your job and you couldn't get another one. Not in the, not in the industry, not in the entertainment industry or the news industry. So he was blacklisted and lost his job. And he was among the very first people, if not the first, to sue the people who blacklisted him. And he went and uh, got a very famous trial lawyer by the name of Louis Neiser uh, in New York City. Uh, and the, the famed uh, uh, commentator and newsman, uh, Edward R. Murrow, provided funds to John Henry, who was practically broke, uh, not having a job, provided funding to him to help hired Neiser to, to sue them. And amazingly, he actually won the case. And when, at the time, this is in the 1950s, it was the largest uh, uh, defamation, you know, amount of money awarded for defamation uh, in, the, in history in the United States. He didn't see much of it, unfortunately, and it was later overturned by a higher court. But the, the, it was a jury trial and the jury uh, actually asked the judge at, uh, after it was over if they could give him more money than he was asking for. 
and because oh, really? uh, they were so <laughs> outraged. Oh goodness! But Johnny, uh, unfortunately, even though he won the case, he was he did a couple of movie roles and some other things, but he really never made it back to the heights of celebrity that he had that he enjoyed before the blacklist, which is a, was a common uh, result of of the what happened to many people who were blacklisted, unfortunately. And uh, Johnny moved back to Austin and established another kind of secondary career as a after dinner speaker. And, and, uh, and again, he, he was very active in the anti-war movement against in Vietnam, the Vietnam war. And, uh, and he and I became very close friends because when I moved to Houston, or I should say, when I moved from Houston to Austin and was working on my book, Red Scare, I uh, went to interview John Henry and we hit it off immediately and bonded and we became the closest of friends. And John Henry agreed to uh, write the introduction to my book, Red Scare. And it was a beautiful introduction. The book is still in print and people can read that part, if nothing else, the, his introduction. Uh, he and I made several excursions uh, around the country on different things, including a trip to Nicaragua in the summer of uh, 1989. And uh, he then died uh, about a year later in 1990. So, and so you mentioned um, that there was this First Amendment conference where Molly was there, John Henry was there. Uh, what sort of other resources are there at the Center for studying the First Amendment? Well, it, interestingly, of course, we've got John Henry's papers, as I said earlier, which is a fabulous collection. Uh, but he also... Uh, after he decided to give us his papers, he and I went to New York City and met with uh, Louis Neiser and his uh, his uh, colleagues in his law firm. And they decided to donate the entire uh, archive that they had assembled in the lawsuit that Johnny had filed against the blacklisters. The actual legal case was called Falk versus Aware Incorporated. Aware Incorporated was the name of the blacklist organization. Uh, and that archive is, is probably the most important archive in existence documenting uh, the, the blacklist and how it operated and who did it. Yeah. So that's one collection. Um, and, you know, we've, we've uh, assembled a number of others over the years. Yeah, I'm thinking the Abby Hoffman papers that came last year were fit into that elk as well. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, part of the John Henry Falk legacy is that it really has uh, uh, opened the doors to other people and uh, who are involved in social change and social activism. Uh, some and a good example is Sissy Farenthal, who is a human rights advocate uh, and former candidate for governor of Texas, former state legislator. Uh, but there are many others. Well, you've painted, uh, you and Janice have both sort of painted this picture of a rather motley Central Texas crowd. And um, I'm thinking one person that doesn't fit in this crowd is uh, is Dolph Briscoe. And uh, I, I, wondered, I, I wondered what you thought he would think of Molly's papers being at the center. Well, Ben, as you know, I got to be good friends with uh, Governor Briscoe also. Um, obviously, he, he uh, set up an endowment. Uh, and uh, for the Briscoe Center, and in fact, the center was named as a result uh, after Governor Briscoe. So he and I got to be very good friends, and I and I uh, wrote an as told to memoir of uh, Governor Briscoe's. And 
he was very well aware of the collections that we had at the center. He had no problem agreeing to have the center named for him, knowing that it was full of papers that, frankly, were far to, far to the left of uh, what Governor Briscoe's political views were. But he was a broad-minded guy, very, very tolerant man. He was a conservative guy. And um, I found out, in the Latin, you know, in his lat- latter days, or last year or two of his life, that he had donated, uh, I think it was $50,000. I may have that figure uh, incorrect, but it was a substantial amount of, amount of money to the Texas Observer, uh, which is, as you know, is a progressive liberal uh, magazine. And um, I've, and he did it uh, and, um, to, uh, in honor of Molly Ivins. And, and the reason that's amazing is because Molly, uh, I don't think the entire time he was governor of Texas, Molly ever let a day go by that she didn't write something critical of Governor Briscoe, and uh, a lot of it was, you know, biting satire. So I called uh, Governor Briscoe after I got that news. He didn't tell me about it. And I called him up and I said, Governor, I'm really proud of you for for doing that. It's a good cause. Uh, uh, and But uh, so I'm, I'm a little surprised because I know uh, Molly uh, really tormented you uh, when you were governor. And uh, Governor Briscoe said, well, Don, I know that. I suffered a lot under Molly. But to tell you the truth, I like Molly and love Molly and honor Molly because Molly loved Texas. And that's the way Dolph thought of things. If you loved Texas like he did, then you're okay. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of American Rhapsody. Be sure to check back next week for new episodes. Upcoming topics include teaching Texas slavery, photographing protest, women's suffrage, and the life and times of Abby Hoffman.